Um, so today is uh, the Lord's Supper and timely we have communion today. Uh, that is just so happens it is actually communion today that wasn't put on for this, uh, for this actual one we're doing today. Uh, we timed it right so we wanted to do the Lord's Supper and understand what it is. So we're going to learn a bit more about the Lord's Supper and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. We're going to do and practice it and see uh, how it works. Now, what you'll understand as we go forward is that this is nothing like the meal that was celebrated or that was done, certainly from a Jewish a cultural perspective. Um, and we really do a kind of shortened version uh, of, what, of, of what they did, which was the cedar meal, the cedar Passover. Uh, but it still has the same heart. And Jesus, even in his time, uh, did not do what they do today in the Passover, the cedar. So uh, we'll see actually the differences uh, and then we'll look more towards uh, how do we fit into that? What's the church's role today uh, in how we practice this meal and what, what we're uh, meant to learn from what the Lord was teaching us? And so the Lord's Supper was this, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And it was a significant moment in his earthly ministry because um, this is the moment where things started to accelerate. Uh, the first moment where he uh, tells all the disciples uh, that he's about to be betrayed. Uh, and this moment, uh, you'll notice later on, if you read further on in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's, just before he's taken away, uh, he says it has begun. Uh, but actually there is almost this sense here that it's also begun uh, in the meal when we start getting this uh, three days of just, just things going on constantly with Jesus uh, in that he's uh, having a meal with his disciples, having a great time actually. And, and the, the Passover cedar is a, a great time of worship and celebration, uh, but actually then right in the middle of that, he says, one of you is about to betray me. And so suddenly you bring the tone down entirely. Jesus just completely removes all of that because he brings, a, he brings truth rather than trying to make us feel better about what we do. So actually, he brings this reality into it. And uh, in one of the Gospels, I think it's in Matthew, uh, he says, uh, they said the disciples were sad, uh, which I think is an incredible understatement uh, in that moment, just to hear that one of their brothers were about to uh, betray Jesus, the one they had been following. And so this is starting to accelerate over the space of the three days. He performed the Last Supper. He pointed out his betrayer. He was captured. He was tortured. He was hung on a cross, crucified, died, buried, and rose again. That's a lot to happen in three days. And on the night of the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples shared in a meal that would have been known as the Passover cedar. And though the, the fully-fledged cedar, as, as Jews know it today, as it's been practiced today, uh, it didn't develop until sometime after the first century. So Jesus and his disciples should be viewed as a kind of primitive, primitive, it's called a primitive, primitive cedar, a very basic cedar. But uh, maybe some of you have read some things about this meal and say, one of the particular things that stands out is why did Jesus, or why was it performed a day before? Um, I'm going to tell you this right now, that above all the theology of that and, and, what already, and what happened, I'm going to tell you this, that Jesus came to bring change. And he told Peter that as well. He told Peter that uh, he was going to bring change uh, to the world, and not in a, in a worldly way, but in a kingdom way. So actually what we get is this sense that Jesus is doing what he needs to do to tell and show the disciples that it's all about Jesus, that it changes 
from the Old Testament. It changes from fulfilling the law ourselves, trying to do that, into Jesus fulfilling the law and therefore paying the price. So things change. But there are similarities in what happens uh, between what Jesus did and what the cedar is today. And I'll read from um, my verses at the bottom. Uh, Luke 22, 7 to 8 and 14 to 20. Uh, And it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb uh, had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The pouring of uh, the kind of practical elements here of what's really of what's actually going on. Um, the pouring of the two glasses of wine, with the practice of pouring four glasses um, of wine during the cedar, is uh, is still similar. There's similarities going on here, but in particular, when you look at the four mm-hmm. cups, this is what they're called. So you've got the Kiddush cup and the cup of Hallel, and it's a cup of sanctification, the cup of plagues, cup of redemption, and a cup of praise. And during this whole uh, Passover of Caesar, they, they go through each of these cups. Uh, and as they get to the end, of course, the cup of praise is at the end uh, when they finish the cedar. And so mainly what they, uh, from a Jewish perspective, the, the, the first and the third cups are quite important. They're very important. And even, I don't, you don't need to look at history to know that because you can look at the name of them. The cup of sanctification is how we can come to Jesus. And the cup of redemption, which is how we can be redeemed in Christ. Uh, These are not complex theologies. Uh, When you look at the names of the cups, uh, it just tells you straight away, they're probably very important, the first and the third. And the cup of praise is really just that sense of coming to praise God for what he's done. And so in addition to that, Jesus' breaking of the bread uh, may reflect the current practice, I've got to get this right, Yakats, 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 which is to break the bread, the breaking of the middle piece of the matzah, which is what we have here. So this has got a slightly different name, uh, but this, this bread on our table here is called, could be known as matzah, and they, they normally break the top one uh, in half. And that's, that's known as this breaking in the middle of the bread, uh, breaking the middle piece. And Jesus symbolically equated his body with the bread. Uh, just as it was broken, he would be crushed for his inequities, as it says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so, again, not directly what you'd see today, but actually uh, there was many uh, different practices as it came together over towards the first century. And actually, uh, when people say Jesus didn't practice the Passover, he did. It's just there are, slightly, there are slight differences in what he was doing. And actually, it's, what it's meant to do is, is make that pivot point, change it from talking about the Old Testament of us fulfilling it ourselves 
and trying to fulfill the law and saying, Jesus came and fulfilled the law for that was what the plan was all along, was for Jesus to come and fulfill the law so that we may be saved because we cannot save ourselves. And then in John's account, we read uh, that Jesus washed the apostles' feet before the Passover. It says, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus was uh, staging a reversal, and another word I have to get right here, uh, which is achatz, uh, achatz. Uh, uh, you have to go right at the back, achatz. Uh, and there are many people, many Jewish people, uh, that actually there's a song that they sing at this point, and many people put different melodies to this song as well. So they, they, they speak of this yachitz, and they, they, they put melody to it. Uh, and you can look on YouTube and find all sorts of people kind of worshipping using this, this, uh, this song. Uh, I couldn't find a picture of um, anything of holy washing of hands. So there's just hands under a tap. Uh, that's about as much as I could find. Um, but it gives you this sense that what Jesus is doing is this reversal. So what's happening here is, uh, in a traditional way, uh, the people leading, someone who's leading uh, that meal, would actually wash their hands but what Jesus is doing is reversal. What he's doing is bringing a different uh, but similar thing in that he's washing the, the filthiest, the dirtiest extremities of the disciples' bodies. And Jesus was offering this sort of object lesson in humility. Uh, so he's reversing this idea that actually Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he comes and he, he washes the feet of sinners, effectively people that are as we are, people that are, are flawed, people that are imperfect, and yet the King of Kings comes and says, I'm going to wash your feet. And you know, you might remember that they objected to him doing that. But actually, he was trying to teach something here. There was an object lesson going on, and he's trying to teach humility. Says, Even the King of Kings comes down and serves the, le the, the least. He serves at them. But in the same way, that doesn't detract from who he is. He's still the Lord of Lords. This amazing sense that Lord Jesus can still be Lord Jesus even though he's washing the disciples' feet. So it's this kind of amazing reversal here. But altogether, the wine, the bread, and the washing are all in keeping with the development of Passover. Jesus and the apostles observed the Passover as it was lightly practiced among the first century Jews. But his additional words, the way he did it, um, the way the actions in, in, inspirited the Passover with his own life and the promise of salvation. So actually he comes along and uh, whilst this tradition has been going on for a long time, he comes and brings this kind of renewal to it. He comes and brings this change to it, as it were. Um, but actually uh, he's still following the, the principles of the Passover. And Masonic Jews, we had um, uh, Richard Harvey here from Jews for Jesus and he's now gone up in, in the organisation. He's an amazing guy. And he did the whole Passover for us last year. And it was an amazing uh, experience of just knowing, of learning all this stuff. We could have sat there for hours just listening to him about all the different breads. And I, what I've touched on is nowhere near uh, what, what Richard Harvey was doing here. We had this table and other tables and food and the bitter herbs and the bitter roots and all that stuff. It was all, all laid out. And it was amazing telling us each and every part how it plays a part in the Passover and what it all means. I can't do that here, one, because that takes a lot of learning and Richard is uh, um, a total on fire for Jesus and 
actually, you know what, what we're here to do is I'm going to give you that little bit of what the, the supper was about, but what do we need to learn from in that? So it's great to know about what, um, what Jesus did then. But they believe, the Masonic Jews uh, believe that the Last Supper was a kind of rededication of the Passover in a world where the, whose Messiah had come. So there were, and still are, uh, Jews that are turning, becoming uh, accepting of Jesus and realising that he is the true Messiah, which is amazing. And Jews for Jesus does that amazing work in Israel and they go across and they risk their lives effectively to go and speak about Jesus to people. And it's, it's, a, it's a great work that they do for the kingdom. But the significance of this meal uh, is shown in uh, by the Apostle Paul where he likens Jesus to the Passover lamb in one of the letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, a Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so does John the Baptist, who proclaims early in Jesus' ministry. He says in uh, John 1, verse 29, says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the central passage that really clarifies the true meaning of the Lord's Supper is found in 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 32, which I don't think I have, but I'll, we'll see anyway. It's a different one, that's fine. But the church in Corinth had abused, basically the context of what hope goes on here is that the church in Corinth had abused uh, the Lord's Supper and Paul writes to them to correct this. And so what we're going to find is three main points in this. The first one is remembrance. So these are three points that we need to keep in our minds when we come to the communion table because this is what we're called to do. This is what uh, we do as a symbolic uh, action, but actually in our own lives, in our hearts and our minds, what we're actually doing is three particular things when we approach the table. So the first one is remembrance, and it's this. Uh, it says, uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Uh, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I think I've got that down as remembrance. So this first point about remembrance, <clears throat> Christ gave us this simple Lord's Supper to help us keep him in memory, to help us to remember him constantly about what he did, especially his blood and body given up for death. And the Lord's Supper expresses the value of Christ by reminding us of him. And through this, our act of remembrance becomes our worship. Our act of remembering him is a worship to him. Uh, it's not that it's, it's there to make us feel bad. In fact, far from it, it's meant to set us free from those things of the world that do try to make us feel bad. And actually, Jesus is coming to do this, to set us free and give us a new life in him. So it's not about whether we're somber or joyful in our remembrance, but in every way we're reverent. And reverent means many different things. It doesn't mean that you just sit there quietly. It doesn't also mean that you just praise out loud and you shout your head off until you, you can't shout anymore. Reference is about how we respect God, how we respect his authority over us. His authority, his, his son who came to die on the cross. Reference can express itself in many ways. 
Reverences honour and respect that is deeply felt and outwardly demonstrated. Because, the, because of the Lord's, Lord God's awesome power and majesty, he is deserving of the highest level of reverence. And we've so misunderstood this idea of reverence. Either you're one who thinks that we should probably, we need to just all sing out loud and pray out loud, and, and that's fine, that, that's, that's reverence too. We're revering God through our worship. But it's also just as reverent to come to him and, and be quiet to pray to him in our personal time, in our private time, in, in church. Just because we're together, it doesn't mean we have to all pray out loud. But actually, praying out loud is to edify the church. Praying out loud is to help one another as we worship God together. So it isn't about whether we are in a certain way or a certain emotion about our heart towards Jesus. How are we reverent towards him? And is it reverence? We need to ask, is my remembrance of God about him and his glory, does it look to glorify God? Does it look to glorify him? In the midst of wherever I am, wherever we are, does it glorify Jesus? Because Here's what happened. Here's these, these strange paradoxes that go on with, as a Christian. Uh, we often say that uh, we, we're, we seem to talk about God in the context of whether uh, it's, it, we're not feeling great today, or whether we're feeling unwell, or whether that, in, in, almost in the negative, I need God more when I don't feel good. And yet, what we miss is that we need God whether we feel good or bad. We need God whether we are happy or sad. And I know where this comes from. I know where this, this culture of driving towards an emotional state in terms of saying, I only look to God, I only praise God when, he is, when I'm feeling bad and he's done something for me. That's a cultural thing creeping in. That's, that's culture creeping into church. And yet, we are spiritually spiritual beings who can worship the Lord anytime and in any emotional state that we are in, in any situation we find ourselves in. And you might not agree with me, but I think a lot of the time when we're in a good place, when there aren't many troubles surrounding us, we often forget uh, the presence of God on our lives. Because it's so easy to. Because culture, the world around us, encourages us to. You're happy now, you don't need God. You're fine. But the very glorification of God can bring our state in line with him. Our trials, our feeling low, is just as a, at the best time as when we're feeling happy and on top of the world bring our state in line with him. And so then we move to evaluation. As part of the supper, we evaluate who we are in Christ. We evaluate our walk in him. This bit might get a bit difficult. I've got a few statements that might make you feel uncomfortable. But let's read this. 1 Corinthians 11, 27-32. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to 
examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now when you read this, this is hard to uh, read in the context of celebrating the Passover with Jesus. But this is awesome. This is some really good stuff that we need to get hold of. Let's just, I'm going to take this apart so we can understand what's going on. Let me just put a caveat over this before I begin this section. Um, weakness, illness, uh, not all weakness, illness, whatever you want to call it, is a judgment by God. It's not, it's not a judgment on you. Uh, we are naturally sick and ill beings because we are human and you know, that's just what happens. Uh, but in a sense here, what God's talking about is, is this, who we are in him who we are and how we are, we are falling asleep because we're not connected with him. We're not really getting to grips with who he is. We're not really walking that path of being a Christian. It's about self-examination. As soon as Paul finishes narrating the Lord's Supper, he goes back to the moral issue in the church, as we saw in these verses. So what does it mean? Here's where you need to brace yourselves. Failing to appreciate what bread and what the bread and cup signify, that Christ loved the church and died for the church. Failing to feel any remorse that our attitudes and actions are so inconsistent with the love of Christ. Failing to renounce those attitudes and actions and turn to the path of love. Failing to trust Jesus for forgiveness and for the power to walk in love. That's a list. But it's not to condemn you. It's not to condemn any of us. What should we do about it? How do we resolve these issues of failing to live up uh, to this walk in, in Jesus, that our faith that we have in him? So we ask another set of questions of ourselves. Do we see and savour what the bread and the cup signify? That Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. Do we feel remorse that at times that our attitudes and actions are inconsistent with the love of Christ for his church. Do we renounce those attitudes? Because guess what? That's what, it, that's, that's what we can do. If we have those attitudes, there is, no, uh, there is no ceremony to go through. This is awesome. What you can do is you can go, Jesus, my attitude has been lousy this week. It's been terrible. And I, I want to reject all that stuff. I want to give it to you and say, Lord, fix my heart. And he goes, yeah, you're forgiven. You're forgiven because you're a child of God, because he knows that we mess up. That's why Jesus came, because we can't fulfill the law. So Jesus comes, covers us in righteousness, and because of him, we can approach the throne and say, I feel terrible, I feel remorseful about my actions, and I, I, I want to repent. And he says, you can repent and you're forgiven. Will we say, I will not treat the church as something cheap. I will love the church and cherish the blood-brought people of God. Do we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of these bad attitudes and actions and for the will and power to walk again in love? Let's be clear. 
at any Lord's table, or any table that uh, communion happens in any church, anywhere in the world, there are no perfect people sitting around that table. And we join those people who are imperfect today. We join those people who are just as imperfect. We are all indebted to grace. We all need forgiveness, knowing that it is our only hope of acceptance. But what Paul does, he warns the church against lapsing or coasting. He warns the church against just sitting back and allowing Jesus to not be worshipped, allowing God not to be put in his rightful place in the church. He talks about God's judgment on some Christians by means of weakness, illness and death, but it's not God's condemnation. If you read this verse, you might have to go away and read it properly. If you read this verse, we are... Self, we are bringing judgment on ourselves, it says. We are bringing judgment on us. In order to move away from that, in order to find a way out, he says, I'm going to give you a way out so you're not condemned with the world. And this is where it comes down to. What's happening here in these verse, verses is the Lord's discipline. He's not disciplining us because uh, he wants to punish us. He's disciplining us because he says, I don't want you to be condemned with the world. I don't want you to go away without knowing who Jesus really is. I don't want you to leave this place unless you know Jesus. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Our illness, weakness and even our death is grace. The fact that we can even experience that is only because of Jesus. It's only because he died on the cross and paid for sin, the consequences of sin, that we sit here today. It is designed by a gracious heavenly father to keep us from being condemned to hell with the world. So when you really look at these verses, when you see on the, if you look at the... the the surface of them, you might think, wow, that's really harsh. Weakness, illness. It says, But God says, I do these things so that you don't be condemned with the world. I do these things so that you know who I am and you will come to me, come back to me and you will have a new life in Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1 uh, says, sorry, that was evaluate, but Romans 8 verse 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But let's be clear, there may be lapses. We may lapse from time to time. There may be seasons of lovelessness. There may be seasons where we don't love the church. God knows where we are heading. And it just might be that an illness or death is grace rescuing us from our shipwrecked faith. Isn't that amazing? Even in what seems to be the worst possible situation, illness or death, it says, but that is going to serve to bring you to me. There is at no point where it is too far that you can go to come back to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? even in the most severe illness, 
you can come to Jesus. Even in the most severe terribleness of our hearts, it doesn't matter because actually Jesus, Jesus experienced the worst of us on the cross. You can't do any worse than that to him. So we come back to him, we say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, a death that I could never have done myself. I could never have died for many people. I could never have given my life so that others would be saved. And he doesn't ask for that. Jesus says, he will do that and he has done it. It's all grace and all mercy for those who believe in Christ Jesus. Sometimes tender and sometimes tough. Sometimes sweet and sometimes severe. But always gracious. On our third point here, anticipation. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. While the Lord's Supper uh, does look back to what Jesus did on the cross, it also looks forward to the coming of Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is awesome. Revelation 19, verse 9. It says, Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. The word proclaimed in many parts of the Bible is translated as preaching or pre to preach. And when we take communion... We preach a sermon to God, to God himself. But we preach a sermon to the devil as well, to his allies. We preach a sermon of God to the enemy and to the world who watches. And we must truly desire this anticipation that the Bible speaks of, that one day Jesus will return that we believe it so much that it influences every aspect of our lives. And our level of anticipation must at least be the anticipation levels uh, that Peter was at. 1 Peter 3, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 4, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His great mercy, he has given us new birth. It's for living hope for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That sense of anticipation is completely tied up with remembrance. Not that we're performing a ritual or religious activity when we come to the communion table, that when we are in our Father's kingdom, we will once again share the fruit of the vine with Jesus. Matthew 26, uh, Matthew 26 verse 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine uh, from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Imagine that day. When, you go to the, when we go to the Father's kingdom, and he says here, from now I, I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I don't know what that looks like, so I'm just going to say we're going to have communion with Jesus. Okay, That's awesome. 
Like, we, we have communion with one another, and I love you all, but Jesus. Jesus is the one, right? Jesus is the one we focus on. Imagine having communion with Jesus. And it's waiting there in heaven. That's that anticipation. And I want you all to know about it because you could join him. You can join him when you go to heaven, when you join him in the kingdom of heaven, you'll, you'll sit with him and you'll have communion with him. That's, that's amazing. So we continue to do this in remembrance of Jesus because he is coming. And we, ne- we ne- need never forget who Jesus is. Luke 21, uh, 29 to 31 says, uh, he told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Just take that practical example for a second. Uh, When you've seen, you know when spring is here, you know when summer is here, you know when winter is here, you know it's coming, you know when it's just changing. Imagine that. Imagine his comparison, Jesus' comparison in this context. And this is what I believe because I have to reread this so many times. In this context, is that in the same way you, you have that almost subconscious sense of knowing when the season is changing, you will know when the kingdom of God is near. Not when it will happen because no one knows that, but you know when it's near. You know when the season will change and you'll know as Christians that the kingdom is near. And again, I don't even know what that feels like. I don't even know what that would be. I take changing season for for granted. I see uh, leaves drop from trees and I think that's just winter or whatever it is, and autumn and winter, and it goes through the seasons. And you just know, don't you? You just know. There's no leaves, so it must be autumn, or they're dropping off, they're changing colour. You know. But I don't think I'm going to respond that way when I sense the nearing of the kingdom. I don't think I'm going to go, you know what? I think the kingdom's near. I'm just going to go and get some food. I'll be back in a minute. You know, you just everything's going to stop for you. Everything's going to just stop. You go, sensing the nearing of the kingdom. I think something's happening. That sense of anticipation of God's kingdom ever closer is just going to be awesome. But for us, it means we must continually seek Him seeking his correction in our lives, being prepared to lay bare all the things that do not honour him, that do not respect and in reverence of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. To evaluate our lives in the light of being an effective disciple for Jesus, never forgetting him, always praising him, and most of all being an anticipation of him. The Lord's Supper is an amazing representation of what Jesus has done. Firstly, to glorify the kingdom and honour the Father. But secondly, to bring salvation by paying the price of sin and its consequences. The very consequences that we deserved, that you and I deserved, he comes and he pays the price for those. So the Lord's Supper is ultimately a remembrance of Jesus both in the sacrifice on the cross, but also as a promise to the future in his resurrection. All tied up in this meal that he has with them. All these different elements that he brings together. 
just to show what's going to happen to him and to bring comfort to them when they actually see him being beaten, when they actually see him hung on a cross. That meal brings them comfort. They will look back, they will remember and go, this is why Jesus is doing it. He was teaching us what he was doing. He was teaching us where he was going. And there are so many more elements to this meal that I do not have time to explain to you that so correlate with what Jesus was doing and what he would then do on the cross and then to, be, to come to resurrection. And if you ever have time, I would suggest you look it up. You probably need about half an hour or so to read about it. But it's, the how it links together is just amazing. To think that these were a celebration of the stories of Exodus, of what happened to God's people. And if for Jesus to connect it all together and say, this is where it was heading. All of that stuff, all of the Exodus, all of the things that God's people were doing were pointing towards him. Because Jesus is resurrected, we also can live a new life in that resurrection, holding fast to the security in what he has done for all mankind. So the Easter message is not making you feel good or bad. The Easter message is not making you feel uh, on fire or not. The Easter message is to remind us about who we are in Jesus. The Easter message is to tell us that without him, we wouldn't be here today. Without him, we wouldn't be able to proclaim the gospel today. And I'm amazed, and I've said this a few times this morning in prayers, but I'm amazed that this perfect Jesus, perfect God, allows us imperfect beings to profess a perfect gospel. That just doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense that you and I, as flawed as we are, Jesus says, you can go and tell people about me. You can go and tell everyone about me. Despite your, your problems, despite the issues that you're suffering with, because that will be a testament to who he is. And all my worries and all my woes and all my illnesses will be a testament to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We're going to have one more song. And just before we do, um, you're free just to sit before we, we had, have communion um, and just to reflect uh, on this song. You can stand up and sing if you like, but just to give you the freedom. Uh, Father, we want to thank you that we can come here today and worship you. We can worship a perfect uh, perfect God, the God. Uh, we can approach the throne room uh, and we can speak with you, pray to you, and you will hear every word that we say. And Father, today we have come to honour and to be the Christians that Christ died for, the people that Christ died for. Father, we want to know again and again that your death was not in vain because it turned into the resurrection and you rose again. And Father, today we have the Holy Spirit who will counsel us who is with us right now, in this room, in each and every one of us, the Holy Spirit dwells in the temple 
we are the temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That is amazing. Father, we're, we just want to say sorry for not realizing the power that you have given us for your glory and for the spread of the gospel, that we may share the gospel because we are so in love with who you are and what you've done. We are so tied into who you are that nothing can stop us from wanting to tell the world about who you are and what you've done. Father, we thank you that we can be representatives of the kingdom of heaven today and that we can bring a message of hope, a message of love, a message of salvation to those that have yet to hear it. Father, we ask you to be with us as we just give some time to you to understand what it is to come and be to revere you, to respect, to evaluate our lives, to find the direction that you have set for us, Father. Lord, be with us as we just seek your Holy Spirit in this place. Thank you, Lord. Amen.